Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and with me again this week is Ted Haycraft. Hey, it's me again. And we are also joined later in the episode by Hollywood Reporter Editor Tyler Coates, and we are discussing the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novelization by Quentin Tarantino. It's a roller coaster ride of reading. <laughs> um, but first, uh, let's talk about what we watched this week. Do you watch anything interesting, Ted? Well, uh, you, I think you'll be happy. I, I caught up to uh, Another World, Another Earth. I, I'm, uh, I've never seen Another Earth. I've seen Sound of My Own Voice, but I've never seen Another Earth. And then I, I don't, as you well What'd know. What'd you think? What'd you think? Oh, I liked it. I really did. I, I was just kind of scared that I was, I was going to be let down because I know so much about it. And uh, really, it was real, um, uh, for a small budget uh, at the time, made a, made a little wave and, and it lives up to it. Uh, it was I, at South, or it, was that South by? I, I, I saw Sound of My Voice at, at South by. I think it's so, yeah. And then um, Reds, I, I, as you all know, we rewatch Reds again. For some reason, I, I watch a lot of Greystoke. Uh, I've put that in. I don't, there was a reason for that, too. I still but, never seen that. That's uh, Andy McDowell. Redo oh, well, Hugh Hudson. Town. Hugh Hudson's been on my mind, which I'll say here in a second why. Okay. Uh, uh, Summer of Soul was my new film for the for the week at the theater. Mm. Uh, that was wonderful. We, we mentioned that. La- you were going to see that last week, right. I think. And then, uh, and then I introduced my sister and her friend to... Uh, Streets of Fire, which they have never seen. How was that? Uh, they were liked it. They really. I said, "Isn't this a fun film?" And they really it is because really it's, it's on Netflix right yeah, now, isn't it? Right, exactly. That's where I found it. And then uh, topped off the weekend with Seven Percent Solution. Uh, Former so. guest Nicholas Meyer, man, represent. Yeah. Um, so uh, I have a, an odd movie I watched this week and a notable movie I watched this week, and the movie itself wasn't notable. Uh, the odd movie. Do you remember? Um, uh, it's Robert Benton's, I think his first directed movie, Bad Company with Jeff Bridges. Yeah, yeah, right. That's well, that's a that's a whole tangent I could go on about. There's a group of these kind of films, these kind of like uh, modern era western type films that I, I have a I have, I have a I got to catch up to, and bad, and that's one of them. You, you haven't seen it? I have not seen that. one. It's on Amazon Prime right now. I was in a kick because the one indulgence I allowed myself with the uh, Criterion Barnes and Noble half off sale was to get Parallax View, and I just heard. I do this every time. I start going through Gordon Willis's list of uh, credits and I start realizing I haven't seen everything of his and just there's so much more. And there's some really, really um, big, big uh, uh, production he- of department heads on this. I mean, Gordon Willis shot it. Uh, Ralph Rosenbaum edited it. The the author of When, uh, when the Shooting Stops, one of the best books on editing. Uh, uh, the Silberts, I think, are, are on it. So many of these films are just lost in the cracks and just got overlooked and forgotten. Well, about. it's with such a great pedigree. And to I, them. I, I don't know if it's their first follow up to Bonnie and Clyde, but um, it's, I mean, it's. I can see why it fell through the cracks. Unfortunately, right. it, it's just it's not it's. It's really Jeff Bridges too. That's what's so funny. It's like I want to say it's right after Last Picture Show or something like that. Doesn't he go on to do another Benton film like Nadine or is that is that Bridges too? I, Anyway, I haven't seen a lot of it and stuff. Oh. So um, the other one, which I saw last night, um, we're socially distanced right now, but um, I might have gotten COVID last night because I went to see a movie. I went and saw Black Widow. Yeah, at no, the no, no, don't spoil anything. Not going to spoil anything, but it was my first movie. I've not only sat next to someone at the theater, but our former our friend and former guest, Aaron Smith, said that they're getting a series of sellouts for Black Widow huh. and the theater was sold out. It was my first sold out show. Um, I didn't wear a mask. Uh, the one person in the row was wearing a mask. Um, and, um, it, it was interesting seeing a big movie back, but yeah. 
Um, so we are going to do this episode on the wonderful new book, The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Novelization, that its writer-director Quentin Tarantino actually wrote. Um, and uh, we spent a lot of this episode talking a little bit about relitigating the movie or a lot of the movie, yeah, too. A lot of the movie. But we also didn't... You Ted, you have a book yeah, about I novelizations? Book. It's, uh, it's called um, Light into Ink, a critical survey, a critical survey of 50 film novelizations. And uh, it's a really, if, you got, if you're into novelizations, this is a really book. They, they, they did it in color and they did it black and white. And uh, you got uh, three, uh, it, it gives you a description. There's basically, it comes down to novelizations. The three, there seems to be like basically three type of novelizations or movie time books, you want to call it. The one that the, it's a book already been done, mm-hmm. and and the movie's based on a book, mm-hmm. and so the the book is just re released with a new cover on it or a movie tie in sticker on it or whatever, and then there's the actual novelization of the script that's like written uh, based on the shooting script and Basically, written very fast what, by a working writer, right? And then the third one is. Uh, uh, a mo- a, are there books that are made after the movie's a success? Right, there's that, but there's a, there's another one where um, uh, uh, it's written, but it it's totally has nothing to do with the script. And the the writer almost has a carte blanche to go into his own directions, uh, and, and, and it's uh, like John Borman goes back, like for example, Zardoz, it, he goes back to his original script. Uh, it wasn't a script that he never used in the movie, uh-huh. and fleshed it all out. So you actually find things in Zardoz that were never in the movie, and it would never, and, no, and not in the script either, uh, shooting script. So the, it's, well, uh, that's apropos of the uh, of this the ones upon the time in Hollywood novelization. Sort of right, but even though I want to say this to me seems like a brand new, unique situation, and I also want to say that Quint and I are you know close in age, and when back in this day when you went to movies, you didn't have DVDs or cable or anything, so you wanted you wanted to uh, have that movie with you and, and and revisit it so movie tie-ins and novelizations were a way to do that and you would uh, you know collect them i collect them by directors mm-hmm. and had them on my shelves and i've seen uh, your stack of i even bought even different yeah. covers i even bought like you know mean streets i got two different mean streets with two different uh, uh color schemes on it just because i, I was that of a collector <laughs> you know after we record this interview you were wondering what kind of fiction you should start reading right now i i got a ink hinking the hinkling that you haven't been reading any of the, many of those novelizations you just have on some well uh, yeah I'm, I'm guilty uh, as, as opposed to quentin read his yeah i didn't read mine uh i did maybe one or two i do say that i got excited after we uh, i think it was after we did the podcast this podcast hmm. i came across a copy of uh, a novelization of Hugh Hudson's Revolution with Al Pacino. Oh. And I had just watched that because of the, the 1776 Episode, podcast. Yeah. So I was really excited. It was like, so I'm kind of this mood. I want to get all my novelizations out and put them back on the shelf again. Okay. Um, I, I, have, I, I, have, I don't think I've ever, novelizations were well after my time. Like, I think the only one I was kind of aware of was the, the Alan Dean Foster Star Wars one that's written quote in quotation marks by George Lucas. But, um, but, uh, I wanted to use this space right now. I didn't get it into the episode, but I think I need to get recorded for posterity my two Quentin Tarantino stories. Oh, yeah, right. You do. You do. Yeah. So uh, back when I lived in Austin, and um, I forget the time period. It was when he was shooting Death Proof. Um, the, he was shooting Death Proof in Austin, and uh, I was working for Richard Linklater's production company, Detour, and at, at Linklater's um, how is kind of... Uh, country house they had a party for the death proof crew 
And as an intern, I was supposed to work it uh, with the food. And I have two distinct stories to tell here. The first one was when we got there and the crew got there, everyone was getting to know each other. We weren't serving food yet or anything like that. And there was a deck where like everyone was at and they were at two different tables. And I was kind of in the middle of it. And I was in the middle between two different conversations. And somehow, and Tarantino wasn't there yet. No one was there yet, except the crew. And they were telling, talking about blowout. Um, they were telling the story about why blowout was the reason Tarantino cast uh, John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. And I'm like, I'm just trying to insert myself into a conversation. And um, I was like, oh, I love Blowout. And I started trying to tell the story about my first time seeing Blowout, where um, the opening the opening sequence in Blowout is a slasher film parody that ends with, to spoiler for Blowout, reveals that it's a movie within a movie, and it reveals it with one of the most amazing, hilarious, funny-sounding screams, which, after I first saw the movie, um, I was living with roommates we all watched that scream over and over and over and i could still do it and uh i need to check my levels real here but it goes something like ah. okay so um i try to tell that story to no one in particular or whoever is listening and there's two conversations going on and by the time i get to the scream and do the ah, both conversations go deathly silent no one looks me in the eye no one acknowledges that i did it they wait a beat and then they continue talking and I just sit there in my shame. Second one, second story. So when we're actually um, making food for, it was like a 4th of July thing, I think. And uh, Tarantino was there by that point. I think he got there late. And uh, the interns were at a grill and I was assigned to do corn, shooks of corn. Oh. Now on a grill, I had no clue that corn could be cooked on a grill or grilled on an outdoor grill like this. I had no idea how that happened. And um, I think basically you're supposed to keep it wet. I don't remember if I was given a uh, squirt gun on it or not, but I was just supposed to keep it wet. And I would hand it to people and I would always be like, is it okay? And like, everything seemed fine. And then Tarantino comes up and he sits at the table next to us while we're all doing the grills and he gets his food and he got some corn. And so I turned to him and go, how's the corn? And he goes, oh, it's, it's good, it's good. And I didn't want to seem like I was needy for it, but I needed to explain myself. So I was like, oh, because I'm an intern and I made and I cooked the corn. And I'm not sure I'm doing it right. And I think I, I'm hoping I just want to make sure it was good. And he's chewing on it and he goes, yeah, it's, it's good corn. And he chews on it. And at the side of his eye, he just kind of looks at me while he's chewing it to make sure it's actually good. Uh, of all the things you get to talk to Quentin Tarantino is about how good your how grilled, good is your corn your grilled corn. Well, I just want to tell him I made good corn and he wrote a good book. And may that be our segue into this episode. Hey, Quentin, if you ever want to come to Evansville, we will grill you some corn. Uh, well, you will. I, I've already done my okay, my well, different king country on that. Yeah. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode. I, I, it's, it's tech, the book. So the book's technically 400 pages, but I know, and we may, we, we scheduled this out. So like all of us would have time to read it, but I got through it in three days. <laughs> yeah. I read it in like four days. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's pretty common. I've heard people saying like a hundred pages a day is a pretty fast way to get through this. Like it's, yeah. 
Yeah. And it really hit me like reading this. Um, Tarantino's scripts used to have pre-Hateful Eight, this thing where they would leak and everyone would jump on them right away. And I had two, I had Inglorious Bastards and Django both kind of ruined because I, you know, not to mix my metaphors, but uh, peeked in the cookie jar or opened my Christmas present a little too early, started reading. Mm -hmm. And this read like a prose version of his scripts, to me at least. I don't know how you guys felt. I probably have not read one of the scripts since Jackie Brown when I was in high school. So really? Okay. Long time. Yeah. Okay. I just have, I don't read as many screenplays as I did when I was in high school and thought that that's what I wanted to do with my life. So, (laughs) right. Well, I think they've been taking, I think they're not on the site anymore, but he was doing these recent essays, these reviews of movies. They took them down. I don't, I I didn't, I I looked for them the last time I couldn't find them. uh, Cause after I was reading this book and I was thinking, I love these reviews because Quentin would go on these tangents and go all of a sudden mm-hmm. he'd go off the topic and, and all of a sudden he's like, he's re, he's re, uh, doing an escape from Alcatraz, but all of a sudden he's talking about Charles Bronson. Have, Tyler, have you read any of the new Beverly essays? He's been posting, Tarantino's been putting some of his criticism on the new Beverly blog. Okay. And so, and so the, there were just these wonderful di- diversions and tangents stuff. So that's the first thing when I thought when I read this, right. I was reading this book, I was like, oh my gosh, he's doing his, is is, is uh, down the multi path of reviews and, and thoughts, it, putting it in this uh, novelization or top, what I don't know what you want to call this. That, That's another we, thing we it, need to address. This was a two d a two book deal, and the second book is supposed to come out that he supposedly is finishing up. But I, I want to say I, he he's been doing the podcast circuit and some talk show circuit, and it's called the book is called something like cinema exploration or something like that like he's trying to do a dry andrew saris style mm. title for it but but this book I, he also told this story on one podcast i remember where he was talking to um his ex-girlfriend who's an english uh who is an english professor professor i think and he she knew his next book was going to be film criticism and she, he asked about the novel and she said well i think i got a glimpse at the film criticism book <laughs> by reading the novel mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, of course. You know, of course. Here's the thing. Interesting thing about it. What is in the criticism and the film history? We're getting the fake stuff, right? We're getting the fake stuff mixed with reality stuff, and then we're getting the true reality or Quentin's uh, perspective of it. So these these like four or five things going on in your mind as you're reading this. It, it's driving me in a crazy in a good way. Uh, when I was reading it, I was just like, oh my god, what is you know? Because like it's. He, he does a slam on Renee and, and Antonioni. I'm like, now who is that slam? I had a, I had a bunch of notes on that. Yeah. Cl- Cliff has um, the whole big section where like his opinions seem very much Tarantino's, and and yeah, like yeah, he yeah. has a moment where uh, he calls Antonioni a fraud, which mm-hmm. uh, I I'm sure I've heard Tarantino say before. Uh, he calls Hiroshima Monomore a piece of crap, which I thought was hilarious. Different directors, too, in the same sentence, I think, or something. He talks, the one I thought hilarious was he was talking about not liking 400 blows because the kids in there, uh, he's like, do they, do French kids worship Balzac? Like, just <laughs> as a god? Um, the one I laughed really hard at is when he was talking about Fellini, and he didn't name Juliet Messina by name, but he called her on her chaplain bullshit. And I heard it again in some other interview, he said, like, I agree with a lot of what, what what Cliff said. Like, cause he doesn't like Rick starts having his opinions on spaghetti Westerns later. And he clearly doesn't agree with those, but right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you take anything else from those Tyler? Or? I mean, yeah, I think that 
I loved it so much. I did the opposite <laughs> of you. I did not listen to anything. I listened to no press because I wanted to go in as cold as possible because I knew that I had the expectation would be very different. Um, which is you also knew it was going to be different. Okay. Yeah, that's also how I went into the film too. I just like truly was like I'm refusing to watch anything because I knew I had so many ideas of what it could turn out to be. And like, I, it tr I truly felt up into the last 20 minutes completely surprised by everything that I was seeing. Like I did not expect the ultimate ending to, to go the way it did. I was still like sitting there, like on the edge of my seat, wondering how he was going to fuck with history the, with this, with this. Right, right, right. And I also kind of loved how that is really just used as an aside in this book, because this book feels less about you know, a story that the film is telling and more about like, these are collections of stories that I'm assembling. Some are, I think some are based on true stories that like all the guys that he surrounds himself, that he loves himself or he loves so much that he dedicates mm -hmm. the book to, um, you know, he's just been hearing these stories from these men for so long and, and kind of created this incredible fantasy slash, historical novel that I just find, you know, I mean, I, I've, I, I've been, I was so like more engaged with this book than anything I've read so far this year. And it makes me feel like I just need to go read like a lot of Elmore Leonard or something for the rest that, of the year. That is just... high praise. <laughs> Part of the reason I wanted to have you on here was I wanted, we, we need to talk the literary stuff there. I wanted to go in the dedication sure. page. He dedicated the book to his wife, Daniela and his son, Leo, but at the bottom he names, six uh, actors from this time, Bruce Stern, David Carradine, Burt Reynolds, Robert Blake, Michael Parks, Robert Forrester, and, oh, sorry, forgot the seventh, and especially Kurt Russell because of the stories those actors told him particularly. Yeah. Um, the mentioning of not reading or listening to any of these podcasts gets to a particular point. I'm, I, I want to put this question to you guys, you two. How much are we, everything we're going to talk about here is I feel like a version of spoilers because a lot of the interesting stuff is the differences or the expansions. But at the same time I've listened to like him on this, on this circuit and his definition of a spoiler is very, very liberal. Like he'll talk about the end of the book. He'll talk about, he's revealed a lot of stuff on these podcasts so mm -hmm. far. What do you guys think is what we should and shouldn't talk about in terms of spoilers? Um, I would say I would not listen to this podcast had I not listened, had, have I not read the book already? So I feel like, and the movie's been out for two years. I feel fine about spoiling things. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Same, same here. I think, uh, I think you established this, uh, your, your, your series of podcasts. They're, these are deep diving uh, somewhat. So I think hopefully the, our listeners and uh, when we get new ones, but that, that they, they expect that from us. Uh, I mean, that... I, 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 I'm still on the, like, I still haven't finally tuned the, that policy. Yet, yeah. So that's why I'm a little questioning of it. But at the same time, like, I mean, it's clear you have to read this book. You have to have seen this movie to read the book. Mm -hmm. And um, you meant, you alluded to it earlier, but one of the crazier things to me is it's on page 110 of a 400 page book, the ending to the movie. And mm -hmm. part when you were talking about the movie itself, um, I always thought of the movie as having this great structure. Tarantino is the person that introduced to me the concept of the hangout movie. He always mm -hmm. describes it. He always uses the, um, 
Rio Bravo or Days and Confused as example, but they're movies that are like long with very defined characters where you want to hang out with the characters. There may not be a lot of incident in the plot, but you like, and so this movie for the first two acts is a hangout movie in, well, actually probably the first two and a half acts. And then as you were describing earlier at the end, because we know Manson's there we, and the Manson family's there, we got a destination, even if we don't exactly know what's going to happen. And that's a fun structure where it allows Tarantino to have his cake and eat it too on it. Yeah. Uh, that's, I, I, I'm still kind of speechless how to articulate this book and how it, uh, the what he condenses and what he expands, what he goes off on. I mean, it's just uh, I've never I've never encountered anything like this. I mean, uh, let me backtrack for a second, uh, Shane, if you don't mind, and ask Tyler, what did you think of the movie? What's your take on the movie? Uh, I love the movie, and I think it. I mean, I saw the movie I think five times in the theater. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have seen it. I'm there. I was there too. I've seen it several times since. Uh, I feel like it has eclipsed Jackie Brown as my favorite Tarantino. Uh. Um, but I also, I mean, I'm coming from a very personal place from it where I moved to LA in 2018. They were filming the movie in LA around that time. I didn't see any of that, obviously. But, and my partner grew up in uh, LA ish. And so just driving around LA with him he's always pointing out like i call it the john tyler tour of los angeles <laughs> because it's not like here's that here's that you know recognizable place it's like here's that recognizable place and here's a weird story from my life about it okay. so when i saw the movie i mean also i'm obsessed i love i'd love i'm obsessed with manson lore i don't um, think i knew that tyler yeah i mean i i i've i ever since watching helter skelter is like in like eighth grade at late night on TBS or something, I was obsessed with it. And then, I mean, I didn't even read the book Helter Skelter until I think a couple of months before the movie came out because I felt like, Oh, I've already, I know everything about it, but I was just kind of refreshing myself. Um, and Karina Longworth's uh, season of, you must remember this, I think is phenomenal. I'm a big fan um, of that too. Yeah. For that, for the same reason. So I think just like, and so I just, I've been, really into like 60s LA through reading like Eve Babbitt's uh, and living here and, and just it was going to see more movies since I lived here coming from New York where I was seeing a lot of theater and there's none of that here. So I just started seeing a lot more movies again. I just felt like this movie dropped at the exact right time in my life. <laughs> and I just also love Tarantino so much. And I, I'd say he's my problematic fave. I find, <laughs> you know, I, I, and I felt like this movie was the the culmination of him. It felt like he was really res engaging with critics in a really fascinating way. I think he um, was taking a lot of his the criticism of his work to heart and also really fucked with the expectations that critics have for his his films. I think that this one is like the most um tender and sweet while also still being very like hard and edgy especially with that ending and i think yeah. that the ending especially just like sets up you know an incredible moral quandary that his audience has to deal with which is like can you justify this extreme violence well of course you can because they're awful people right um, so that you know i just find that that whole thing to be so 
smart and like he truly created a film that I think engages with the audience in such an incredible way while also being like him. I mean, he's, it's like Tarantino, like from beginning to end. You know, I think we're in similar boats. I think Ted, to a certain extent, is where I've had problems of picking a favorite Tarantino movie because I think he's like, it's like with Kubrick or with the Coens where like, my favorite is the last one I saw. Mm. But I've tended to say Jackie Brown used to be my favorite. And lately I've been thinking Once Upon a Time is, and a lot of it is, is what you were saying earlier about uh, him responding to some of his critical, the, his, the, Issues critics have had in the past. Mm-hmm. I have for a while. I still, I, for a while, I thought he was either one of our top American filmmakers or one of the best. But I still had, I think, since Kill Bill, like I, I kind of got tired of two things that he's he's really really leaned into. It was the chapterizing of five art of five act movies, but the chapterizing kind of got a little overused and seemed like for someone as interesting a little too old and. I was really getting annoyed that every movie was motivated. It's big motor to take, get you through the movie was a revenge story. Mm-hmm. And I really kicked in around Kill Bill where I was like, uh, Park Chan-wook's doing this better. But then like, and he kept doing more revenge movies. And just the simple fact of getting through Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the movie, no chapter titles, uh, just, a, I mean, it's a clear three-act structure, but like, it, I just... It felt like a different filmmaker, slightly. Well, let me ask you both, you guys, this that, I mean, I maybe just you know this might show, how maybe dumb I am or I'm overlooking something's obvious, but it seems like the movie and the book seem to be so unique and weird, and you can't place it in because I mean you try to explain, I mean you try to explain the movie to people. It's like, well, it's just a couple guys, and you just kind of follow them around in Hollywood. I mean, they're, uh, they, I mean, I I felt like I'm in new territory here with this book and this movie. It's something that I've never experienced, um, you know. Even you know, just because because you're saying like you can't if you tell someone the plot of this movie, you don't think it sells them on it. Not not, not so much that. Just trying to, you know, there's not an A plus B equals C with these things. It, it seems like, uh, like you said, the Hangout movie. It's like it's, it, it's something very. Almost like a new genre or something. Well, it's, it's t- ter- just, you know, it's funny. Does it make sense? Is one it- of the things he's been saying lately is like in terms of writerliness, like uh, Tarantino takes pride in how good exposition he is because he'll bury them in these long, maybe you call them hangout scenes, but these scenes that seem like you're just goofing around with like flashy dialogue. And But he's putting like he, the example he keeps using in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is when you first go into Cliff's uh, trailer and meet Brandy. Mm-hmm. And you feel like you're seeing how Cliff lives, and you see that he's got an like a cute dog that loves him. But Tarantino makes a point. I'm telling you, this dog is trained very well, yeah. just because that's going to pay off. And it's a it's it's more of an elegant way of hiding exposition, so that you really just don't know plot points are coming to you until they are needed. Well, both of you guys are much. Uh, you read guys. You I think you two read much more than I ever do. So, I mean, do you see, the, I mean, is this a unique uh, writing or is, have you seen it before in other writers? Or is it- I would, I mean, I, from the beginning, I, I kind of described the film as a play. I mean, just the three-act structure, the long scenes of just talking. I mean, that's why, that's why I love Tarantino as a writer. 
And what I love about Jackie Brown is that just like the writing is so tight and sharp. That's what I loved about Pulp Fiction the first time I saw it. It was just like the the writing and these characters that he creates are so interesting. And that's what I loved about this too. It's like these these are characters that are are very much inspired by real people and they feel incredibly real because he is an expert at this subject matter, which is this era in time. But he also just like creates these characters that are so fully realized and they're so fully realized that, and we'll get to this, I'm sure too, is that you are complicated. You have complicated feelings about whether you like them or not, because mm. they're despicable people, but they're also incredibly likable people. And it's really, I mean, I can't think of another character like Cliff Booth and like the expansion of the character in the novel. The expansion is crazy. It's insane. I mean, it's insane. And like, yet my opinion didn't really change of him. I mean, I don't think I would want to be his friend. And I don't think I, I would respect him if I knew him in my real life. But I don't know. I just, it's also complicated. It's also fiction. So I, that's why I'm it's, allowing it's myself fiction. to be like, it's fine, you know. I had this I had this worry that like like if I were friends with Cliff would he kill me someday and is he going <laughs> to kill Rick someday like right. the, the expansion on Cliff is interesting but I want to get back to the literary part Tyler mm-hmm. I I've had this I don't have an answer for this I I imagine you won't either but what do you think Tarantino when he talks literary references he seems you know he lo- you know his whole thing in film is he loves high low high art mm-hmm. high art low art and when he, and he seems very well read but he also seems like he's very well read on paperbacks and when he talks <laughs> high like the high art of liter he 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 sometimes seems like he's read one and gotten bored with it or sometimes mm-hmm. like i've heard him mention things like mark twain in the past but it comes down to like elmore leonard's the things i think of yeah i mean i think that he's very much I mean, again, it's like the pulpy. I mean, Elmore Leonard, I feel like is the as a as a writer who deals with kind of this that world a lot. I feel like he is the one who has been kind of identified as like the highest brow, maybe. Like I think that like Library of America has released his books, you know, in their collections, that sort of thing. Um, Which like maybe some of the old noir writers like James and Kane would sort of fit into but you know there's I, really um, not- one of the ones that on our episode we did a, on miami blues uh we talked about tarantino a lot because the writer charles wilford said that or he said that charles wilford was a big influence on pulp fiction but at the same time these these are a little more modern version of the writers you're talking about too yeah. which is modern pulpy po- or, you know 70s 80s crime writers yeah i mean i think you can you can look at like Thomas Pynchon and uh, uh, Inherent Vice is like, that's like the the prestige version of that genre. Okay, um, okay. Because I think he, I think the, the, the book does it first because it's taking, I mean, it's taking his like incredibly dense, you know, which I've, I, I'll admit I've read like one chapter of that after seeing the film and loving it so much. But, uh, and then Paul Thomas Anderson does it again. Like he kind of elevates like even higher than maybe what Altman did with The Long Goodbye, which like The Long Goodbye comes from, you know, Chandler's stories, which again, I yeah. think were, you know, at the time were probably trashy, pulpy novels that have have gained some literary renown. And um, Long Goodbye is like a very, like it's, it's Altman's following 
the basics of the plot, but it, like he's throwing a lot of it in. Or, oh, he's deconstructing it. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, yeah. He's, really, he's which is it's all about the vibe, really. Uh, the way yeah. I look at it that way. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't call this book very literary. Um, and I think that he wouldn't either. He released it as a paperback, not just because of like the nostalgia of it. I think it's because it is, it's an $8 book, you know, it's not anything. It's an $8 book. Yeah. And I think that's what's so great about it. I mean, you can tear through it and it's really well done. It's not like, it's not trash, but it's also not like art. Um, I feel like he is an artistic filmmaker and he's a good writer. I think he's a great prose writer who can be entertaining for sure. One of the things he's been saying in the interviews is um, even though I, I, I've been pushing this idea that like the prose is like his scripts um, that uh, when he was going to his editor, his editor, he asked the editor about the Lancer chapters, which are a West, you know, the Western, the pilot that's being shot in the movie. Mm-hmm. And the editor, he asked just a basic idea, what, uh, what they thought and she's like, well, clearly they're the best written uh, book chapters in the book. And he was like, well, yeah, because I'm not trying to write in my own voice. And like, this yeah. is the voice of the narrators that have been in his movies, whether it's Kurt Russell or he himself in uh, Hateful, Hateful Eight. It's the other literary thing I've been I've been thinking a lot uh, the last few years about the difference between um, your, a prose style that like flows very easily to read through like it, it, i think it's a compliment for the most part as long as you don't feel dumb reading this which i don't think you feel dumb reading this um to get through a uh, hundred pages a day is is good writing i think yeah is a, is a is a goal for sure i mean you know i think i i also read lonesome dove last year and larry mcmurtry i feel like is also he 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 straddles that line too um yeah and that and that was a book that I you know I read it and being like oh this reminds me a lot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because the characters are sometimes very despicable and let you still have some sort of like I don't know genuine feeling of hope for them I guess is the thing or like you want them to succeed. I kind of look at like this. There's a thing of Tarantino that he's really dived into where he really wants you not to think one thing of any of his characters and he puts mm-hmm. it in your face of them. And he, he'll like, Hateful Eight was the kind of like peak of that, I thought, where he, he just like was really forcefully having things that's like, these characters are doing things that like, but at the heart, I still wonder what is Tarantino's humanism? Like, he, I, I think he's in, he's it goes to the basic concepts of is a is a like likelihood like making a character like or likable mm-hmm. yeah is that is that the goal of a writer and I, I i think all of us would agree that's not like um i don't think it's the goal of the writer i think it is a tool for a, a writer maybe and it's something that an audience wants i think an audience wants to there's we need a reason to follow a character for so long. I think it's easier in a film to have a bad person that you follow because it's just, it's a shorter amount of time. I think if you're going to dedicate, you know, 400 pages of your life uh, and maybe if it's a little bit more denser writing, you're going to want that character to be a little bit more um, digestible. Maybe I think it's tough. Um, I think I, I look at him and I look at David Lynch in the same way because I think that they both get the, a similar um, criticism about their treatment of women. Um, and I, I look at them as not really, I don't, I think that they uh, are striving to depict the world around them 
in their films and and I think that they find their worlds to be very dark and fucked up and people are very are capable of doing terrible things and that's what makes you a human is that is that you are able everyone's capable of doing something bad it's the choice that we make whether or not to do those things um and I think everyone is capable of violence in some sort of manner um and you know uh, hateful eight i think is is the strongest uh version of that that question i think i think which uh, especially with jennifer jason lee's character whether or not you can see her as a victim which she is a, a victim of violence but she's also a perpetrator of it yeah um and i don't think you were supposed to leave that movie thinking well she's good or bad i think everyone's bad in that movie and yeah well i'm, I'm gonna paraphrase bob dylan here and said if you could put my thoughts if you could see my thoughts you put my head in the guillotine uh, mm. because I think that's this book, especially more so than the movies, I think, because you're, you're engaging your mind with the, the prose that, that, uh, that uh, he's getting to say you know, four letter words and things that you would never dream to say out in public. You would never talk right. about uh, with uh, your, fr- uh, the only, the only things that some of the things you think about that you could share with your very, very close friends, locker room talk, Really, things that you would not want to be—that's a loaded phrase there. Yeah, well, well you know, uh, really, you know, things that you would not, or you know, or you're satirizing somebody you saw in a, at a Walmart or something. You wouldn't do that that at your church or your picnic, your family picnic, but you might do it with a close friend. He gets to do this in the book. You know, you get to hear the thoughts of these characters, and uh, and and that you—that's right. What what Tyler yeah. says is just that you just. Uh, I did want to tell you, Ted, that yeah. in one of these podcasts, I can't remember the the Bob Dylan song, but uh, they asked uh, Tarantino about um, why there was a big gap between Pulp, or, um, Jackie Brown and Kill Bill. And he was talking about how, as much as he loved movies, there was a period where he was uninspired just because he didn't know what the next mountain was going to be. And he quoted a Bob Dylan song about something about the muse just not being there for him. Uh, I'm not inspiring him for him. Would it be my masterpiece or no? Uh, I or the uh, watching the river flow? Might be that. Yeah. The Do river. you remember? A yeah, particular... it might be it. Uh, yeah. So, I, I, if you hear that podcast, I feel like you'd be uh, <sighs> giggling a little. Well, yeah, I'm a big Dylan freak, and and and, okay. and, and, and of course, I find out Tarantino is one too. So I make you know, every time I turn around, Quentin's in comic books, which I'm into. I mean, just uh, the whole uh, splitting Kill Bill apart in two parts, three and four Musketeers. They, Split apart. He has his own prints of those films. Yeah. At the city of we're getting we're getting off on a tangent here, like Quentin does, you know. Yeah. I, to finish up the likability thing, I always think of like uh, King Richard or Alex from Clockwork Orange or Travis Bickle, where like those people, those those are the ones that like people want to watch them, and mm-hmm. it, that it's hard to put your finger on why, just because. Or you sound like you have the unlikable character, you know, something I, when I was taking a pilot writing class last year, like the, the instructor, one of the things that I, makes me laugh about still is that, you know, he's like, it's really, really hard to, obviously your protagonist has to have some like, you know, struggle and problem that is going to like be their fatal flaw. And that usually leads to them being, there's something unlikable about them that you want to see them change. And that's why you're following them. Um, but he was like a really good example of that is East Bound and Down, where that was such a great show, not because the character was great to watch, but because the actor portraying him was, I mean, 
Danny McBride is just like, you can't take your eyes off him. Everything he does is so funny. And his delivery about everything is so funny. And every copy that came about two years after that show failed because no one can do a character like that, like Danny McBride can. You think it's in the performance? I think it's a lot in the performers. I think, I mean, obviously the three that you mentioned are obviously... Um, they have great examples on more them, yeah. than that. I think it's the writing. Yeah, I mean, I think that I don't think that I don't think that Alex and the Clockwork Orange is all Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think there's a lot of other people who 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 prop that up. Um, but I mean, you know, I think you know, and Richard the Third is obviously you know almost an ancient at this point literary character that has yeah. inspired so many people exactly like him in contemporary right. versions or modern versions. I think a lot of it has to do with the actors portraying them. And I think that like, I mean, you know, I think I was thinking this reading the book, I was like, even if Brad Pitt, if we saw him doing the things that we see Cliff do in the book, I mean, I'm talking, the stuff, I mean, the worst part to me was the dog fighting as a dog dad. I mean, weirdly enough, the murders were not bad, but the dog fighting <laughs> to me was outrageous. Um, I mean, the, the, the murder of his wife or the killing of his wife, I guess we could say, because it's up in the air whether or not he meant to do it. Um, you do get a... It's still well, up in I the mean, air. Well, I, he even says it. I mean, you know. I'm I'm looking literally what's on the page before I jump to conclusions because I okay. think that like the rest of that sequence in the book changes the tone of that throwaway scene in the film because I mean it's a disgusting and horrifying. Um, yeah. If I would describe it, he shoots her with a shark gun and like her body falls like splits in half, <laughs> and he yeah. holds her together in his arms for hours and like they talk and like have a tender conversation. And then the irony is that the rescuers come and completely kill her by just moving her body and she falls apart. Uh, it's fucked yeah. up and disgusting. Um, which, like, again, like, this is, I mean, this is imaginary. It's fiction. I mean, I doubt that someone told Quentin that they that this happened to anyone in real life or whatever. You Fingers know, crossed. These, Let's hope not. Yeah, any of these guys. I don't think that it's, like... I obviously, I think it's very clear that it was inspired. You can't take the Natalie Wood of it all away from it. Okay. Um, at least, I mean, I couldn't, and a lot of people that I saw the film or I talked to the film about with could not. Um, but I think that, again, that he's playing with these Hollywood myths and these Hollywood legends and reinterpreting them for his own to fit his own imagination, which I kind of really appreciate. And I don't know anyone else who is bold enough to do that. As, as you were saying about like, we, we get to hear his character's worst thoughts. And I don't think that that, I think it's, I think it is, it, it's such a bad faith reading, which people do this with him all the time as they do with most right. a lot of people to assume that he feels the same exact way as his characters. I don't think he does. I think uh, that Well, I is... wholeheartedly don't think he does. Like, yeah. I, I think, I th and I think the trick is it's... that I think he's, he wants, he wants no one to think he does. He yeah. Think he does. I, and yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't mean to infer that either. No, but I mean, it's more, but it, but it does give you a liberty, a, a license to, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, to be a freedom. And of course, you, like I said, it's not, no, none of us, hopefully, Nobody wants to think that way or say those well, you kind can't, of things. You, but you, you can't love, control your thoughts. But yeah, but but there are that. There's that side of everybody too, 
and it, and it gives you that outlet. Right. Um, uh, I want to kind of uh, one thing I want to throw in here too, going back to this. You said that this is like his maybe one of his best films, if it's not his best film. And I think of Clint Eastwood with Unforgiven. Mm. That Clint got to that place with Unforgiven, and they and I want to say they almost have the same kind of structure in terms of Clint doesn't. He's anti-violence in the whole film, but then all of a sudden it gets he has his cake explodes in violence, and again, right. and then and the same thing with this uh, with the Once Upon in Hollywood, he it's a whole different Quentin where you know just floating along having a great time, and he throw and then he has this you know he throws that sequence in that you know the, the real extreme diehard Quentin fans that want to see that kind of stuff are are you uh, well we're going to talk a little bit about rewatchability but that like I I watch this movie so I'm with you Tyler and I know Ted's the same way I have since especially since buying the blu-ray I've watched this movie so many times I think I saw it five times in the theater too but that's the sequence I still I still guffaw every time the dog food can comes up like every time I missed a chance I I was at a I was at a little show and Nick, uh, what's the, the special effects guy from The Walking Dead, Greg Nicotero? Uh, he uh, he yeah. had on his phone, and Lucas saw it. My friend saw it. I didn't see it. He had on his phone. We were up in the hotel room showing uh, 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 Zoe Bell fighting the puppet dog. And the, <laughs> the, the dog was a puppet at one point. It was okay. Right. And I missed seeing that. And I, I was like so mad because uh, he was showing it to some people in the in the room. And I I just heard for the first time. I didn't realize it, but you know the big shot where you reveal uh, Rick's. Um, uh, trailers behind the trailer park and or um the drive-in excuse me the drive-in yeah and you see the cars there all those cars are model special effects oh yeah i i interviewed the uh the production designer and she like explained how they did that like that's one of the very few like i mean they really i mean I, what i also respect about this film is that like the i mean it's very 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 little cgi and and that, and, and she was one of the first interviews I did for The Hollywood Reporter during Oscar season, where I realized, like, it just kind of blew my mind where she was just talking about, you know, I we were basically, I gave her a bunch of different locations and we were discussing, like, the process of recreating them. And one of them was the taco, like, the shot of the Taco Bell. Um, I heard him explain that, too. Yeah. yeah, where, like, it's just in that, it's it, my favorite part, which is uh, the out-of-time sequence where they come back to L.A., yeah. it's dusk, you see all the neon coming on, and they found an old Taco Bell, like, I mean, probably almost in Orange County, where they, like, redressed it. I don't I don't even think it was an operational building what way. he said was that there was one of the, the that i just heard in a podcast today was that it like the, the the trick of it was that you know taco bells or their wiener schnitzels have very distinct designs mm-hmm. and so what will happen is when they close down other restaurants or the places will take them over but they're not going to change the design on there right so yeah, they were yeah, saying yeah. it was the last taco bell that like had that design right and they basically like they made an arrangement with taco bell to like they were going to like get this like redo the signage to like give back to taco bell like as artifacts for their museum but again like they probably i mean what they probably spent weeks on this one location that literally takes up a 10 5 to 10 second shot and like that to me is like what like that blew my mind and i i even said that to her i was like you know it really never occurred to me that you would put so much work into what amounts to two to three seconds of film. And she's like, that's literally all we do. Like it's, we never know how much it's going to be in the movie, but like we're doing it because we're trying to make it as real as possible there Um, in this movie. What's always been great is there's so much glorious money on screen. Like mm -hmm. it's, 
Like, uh, do you ever hear him say that one of the influence on the camera work was Max Ophuls? <laughs> I haven't heard that, but it makes sense. It makes sense, doesn't yeah, it? It's yes. such glorious, elegant, invisible camera work that seems really expensive. Yeah. And also, like, as you were saying, I, I thought about this too, you know, the chapter title stuff of his, uh, that period of revenge films, which I, I remember the first time I saw it in Kill Bill, I really didn't like it because it was so inconsistent. Like yeah. The, the titles and the, and you know, did you, fonts. did you have a problem it's with really the font bug. at the beginning of Kill Bill's Kill Bill? Oh, 100%. I really and glorious Bastards. Like, I did not like the first, I did not like the first Kill Bill when I saw it. And then I watched it again and really liked it because I thought it was just like, well, this is just like the violent Quentin Tarantino that mm, okay. is good. But I want like the funny, I want the sharp writing. I want the dialogue. I think when I, I, saw I remember when Kill them, Bill first came out, everyone was like uh, marveling how little dialogue there was. Right. I, I remember right. it did blow me away because I didn't know he was that good of a director. But because right. I, I, I mean, Glorious Bastards, I love That's I would say in my top three. Um, but I felt like I, I liked that this one was like a little bit less heavy on like that kind of in your face postmodernism technique. I mean, I think I, I know people really hate the the Kurt Russell narration that comes out of nowhere twice. I still like it because I just find it to be again, it, this is a, a movie about legends and lore. So I just find right. it all to be part of the tall tale aspect of it. I've just gotten yeah. used to it because he's used it in a few movies yeah, by this yeah. point too. Yeah. Well, my, you know, I mean, we're, I, we're talking more about the movie here. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> you, you, you can't help, but I, I just you to, can't. to my you really money, can't. two of my favorite sequences are just Cliff driving back to his home, and uh, the the neon lights coming on, like you said. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I could live. To me, that's just you know, I know a lot of people use a love letter to L.A., but to me, it's a love letter to cinema. I mean, it's just yeah. what what the what what you could do with cinema that just makes it work so well. And, and, and if you're, if you're in that zone, you just, so this is it. I know? think to bridge those two, I feel like it's a love letter to um, Hollywood and the industry making of Hollywood. Oh yeah. The, the, the yeah, yeah. The, the, stunt, the stunt man and the, you about the, yeah. Cause I mean like the, the, the thing about the, the, mo- line. the movies in love with TV and TV production too. Like that's the and the in the craft into TV production. I think I think we come to realize how much TV is in Quentin. I don't at, right. at, at, at first. You know, it's, in fact, it's interesting. You know, he was he's he's uh, slagging these uh, foreign film and foreign directors, but he, you know, Band Apart was the name of his company. right. Goddard. So mm-hmm. I always I always thought, well, he's you know obviously into the uh, European stuff, mm. but he uh, but now like. You know what's his name? Uh, Jamie Fox is wearing the, uh, the the coat from uh, Michael Lennon's coat from Bonanza. Yeah. I mean, all these little TV things are just. I mean, and you the know, love and, and the the minutia of Lancer is beyond belief. You know, supposedly one of his next projects, whenever he's done making movies or in between, is he's written five episodes of Bounty Law yeah. that he's going to mm-hmm. film. That he says he's going to film. I've heard that like the the ten movie thing is real, but that means he's not retiring. He's just going to move into television, okay. which sort of makes sense to me. I mean, he's done TV before. I, I think that like I could see him writing a play and directing it. I think that like, you know, I think what is so great about his films is that you know, again, we live in the most po- postmodern era of all time because we're constantly there's no, every new thing is literally a rehashing of something else that that was itself a rehashing or 
or it's been litigated by somebody. Yeah, because like I mean, you know, we're we're living in an era where we're now we're seeing a lot of references to the '90s, which in the '90s it was all referential to the '70s, which was referential to the '50s and the '20s. Like that's really what's happening here. And I feel like what I love about his stuff is that he is, I, and this is where I think I relate to him. As a kid, I was just obsessed with pop culture and I was obsessed with television. I was obsessed with movies. I knew everything about movies I wasn't allowed to watch because the best way to like engage with them was to like read the Leonard Maltin reviews or watch the clips <laughs> on like those CD-ROMs or whatever. Or buy the movie tie-in. <laughs> yeah, tie-in. yeah, exactly. Tyler, you know what I was thinking about the other day is, um, you know, the in Pulp Fiction, the Ezekiel speech is uh, lifted from, do you know which film it's lifted from, Ted? The, the, the Ezekiel speech. It's rewritten, but it's taken from like a, like a Shaw Brothers film or something. Oh, I didn't know that. It, it's not exactly a Bible quote. What I was thinking about the other day is going back to the episode you were last on, Tyler, with uh, the flick and how yeah. that speech is integral into the flick. Yeah. So like... No one talks anymore about Tarantino lifting from other films. Like, it, it's something that disappeared after kind of Jackie Brown to a certain extent. Maybe came back for Kill Bill. It had to have come mm-hmm. back for Kill Bill. But for the most part, it was gone. And then you think of something like a play as good as the flick takes the speech and does something new with that, something that he took from somebody else. And it's just mm-hmm. culture being reused but finding finding new meaning in it too yeah recontextualizing it recontextualizing. i mean yeah i think that that's i mean he's still i mean what i love about his use of music is that it's all inspired by film i mm-hmm. mean you're thinking about cat people and inglorious bastards i mean yeah. that is such a beautiful sequence and the reason why he picked that song is because it's from a movie or judge I mean, Levine in at the yeah. end of this too i mean most of his music cues come from other movies or you know or scores that are made up from other scores bernard like Herrmann and kill bill or if not that, that it's that's obscure pop songs it's not your top yeah it's not your pop yeah. songs that everybody knows it's the it's the ones in the 30s and the 40 a chart you know yeah i mean the use of the radio as a character in the film it really and, is and using those jingles that like work as i mean the tanya tanning song is like a <laughs> that, great song it's that makes an appearance in the book too that like yeah. i was impressed that he got some of the radio stuff still into the book too yeah i mean i think that like that is him being a connoisseur of so many different mediums and mm. using them all in his storytelling i mean that i think that this does i mean it uses like the cutaways to other films the fake films the real films that he inserts people into uh it's just it is the world building i think is just phenomenal like he created a whole new world of a world that like already existed that you know is like truly aspirational i think as a writer because as as we've mentioned like the lancer plot like just basically rewriting the lancer plot but still explaining what lancer was about and like Do, are you guys familiar with the lancer I, I i was i was looking up clips on youtube today of it and i always thought it was a full-blown like it, it was a pilot that didn't go no it, no it's two seasons no it was two seasons yeah yeah okay yeah so well, i mean do you remember anything of it or i you know i i do know the name and i know andrew duggan and i 
I mean, I, I was at an age where, you know, I was more in, uh, entranced by the new Westerns, the spaghetti Westerns, the dirty Westerns. So, sure. so TV stuff was just like, yeah, if I had nothing else to do on a rainy day, I might drop it on a, have gunwheel travel or, or syndicated, re, you know, repeat mm-hmm. a rawhide. But so Lancer was just in that mesh, you know, big Valley bonanza, all that stuff, you know, uh, at my age, I was like latter day Westerns, you know, if I was younger, uh, late fifties or, you know, it was even more so, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but no, but Lancer was part of that big mesh of mass of Westerns. The stuff he seems to be celebrating to a certain extent for yeah. someone. Yeah. And uh, even, uh, even like the, the procedural, like the FBI and, yeah. and Mannix and stuff like that. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of, it all predates Columbo, but there's such a huge obsession among like film Twitter folks with Columbo. Yeah. Um, Columbo is on Peacock now and everyone's obsessed with it over the pandemic, I guess. Because it, I mean, because that was a show that like got real stars and got real actors and 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 directors. And Patrick McGowan directing. (laughs) Patrick McGowan, but the pilots by Spielberg too. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really, it feels like less of like about cinema, but just like about Hollywood at the time. And also just like pop culture at the time that he just has been unable to shake because it was just so. It's, it's, um, yeah. It's a little tricky though, because uh, I, I'm pretty knowledgeable when it comes to a lot of film history. And I, and I, and like when he goes off into like uh, the canon for Cordoba with Papard, you know that's you know i know that film dalton's not in it but he, he talks about you know dalton being in that and the deadly trackers so i'm i'm curious we know a, a kid reading this he'll never he, he won't know and the, but then like he goes into real stuff like the aldo he don't go he'll give you a whole history of aldo ray the aldo that ray chapter, chapter is, is just amazing and heartbreaking and you get too. a little you get a capsule history of aldo ray and at first i'm thinking why is he doing this he just must love aldo ray and let it go with that but then you then you also he uses it deceptively as another character tick of cliff yeah yeah uh, you know like, oh cliff gives you know you see why but it's just but I, that's the really crazy thing is like what is real and what isn't real in terms of the history aspect of it well mentioning aldo ray i want to go into one of my favorite observations of the book is um he talks about a lot of the male actors of this period who went to world war ii and mm. clearly got some like irreparable ptsd but they they would then go to hollywood and become these big leading men and give this idea of modern day machismo but at the same time they would have to get blisteringly drunk to get through any violent scene he talks about uh lee marvin stuff yeah the i watched the movie uh spikes gang is what it's called i watched it on uh youtube that scene he was talking about and it's weird because the scene carantino talks about specifically Lee Marvin at least delivers his lines where. See, that's where I'm. I'm, I'm wondering. That's tricky because he also mentions earlier on that Lee, uh, because of his drinking or something, he didn't get the part for Dollars More. And I've read, you know, tons and tons of. Le- I'm a big Leone freak, so I kind of know all the actors that were up for that part, and I don't remember ever coming across that in any of my. Uh, uh, Is this something he might have heard from uh, through the grapevine? Possibly Quentin knows something that I don't know. Or it just makes sense because every act, Leone wanted every actor before he got to Lee Van Cleef. Like, just like he did with Clint Eastwood the first one. He went through every, he wanted every actor before Clint. So I don't know. So that's, that's the, that's the part I'm kind of like, is this, uh, I need to, I need to go find this out or this is kind of tricky. You know, it's kind of, but the other stuff is real historically accurate, you know, so it's interesting. It's the world you were talking about, Tyler. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that it's a really interesting, you know, 
again, you can critique him, I think, for the way he depicts masculinity or toxic masculinity. And I think that this movie, A, is a really great example of just male friendship. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. like, I mean, I love the line in the film, too. And I can't remember if it's in the book, but, like, when when they refer to each other as, like, not really a brother, not really a you know, a husband, you know, or a lover or something like that. Like what, where do you, how do you like break off your relationship that it's in the narration when they come back from Italy in the movie? Yeah. That isn't, it can't be defined because there's like no social norm that defines it. And I do Mm -hmm. think that what this film, and I think the book expands on it is really looks at like, like these long-term ramifications of the post-war life that really fucked up these men. And mm. and not just the men in Hollywood, but men overall. And I, I don't know much about his relationship with his father. I know that he's opened up about it being a little bit more complicated. Again, I don't read a lot of his personal life stuff. He told a crazy story about his real dad on Joe Rogan. He, but mostly, I, my favorite chapter in the book is the chapter uh, at the uh, Drinker's Hall of Fame where it's clear he considers his dad a stepdad. Yeah, and his dad, but Curtis. he sort of like refers to Cliff as the father. I mean, he refers to a character, a little boy named Quentin. Yeah, without yeah. I, he also calls himself out. Like literally, he makes his own cameo and a <laughs> reference, like a a flash forward line. The that but, is that 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 has made the multiple appearances on the podcast. I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about his criticism that's on the New Beverly blog. Uh-huh. That the movie he mentions in there, there's an essay on it that he talks about. It's a John Sayles script that was written that was never produced with the money it should have been produced with, and so that's the movie that he remakes in 1999 gotcha. in between the Jackie, Lady Red, yeah, Jackie Brown and uh, Kill so Bill, funny. apparently. But you know, I I have I did read an interview where he described the angle he shot cliff driving from was deliberately lower because that was evocative of him driving around with his father around Los Angeles. And so I think that that, I think it, maybe he is examining something about his father there too, that, you know, his father had these issues stemming from the same event that all these other guys had, were kind of recovering from. Yeah. That's interesting. I was, I was wanting to bring this up, um, that, uh, it's remarkable though, that he, this is uh, when he was about six years old. How much do you guys remember when? Oh my gosh, the memory level. Yeah, I mean, my you know my memory doesn't start kicking in maybe like eight, ten years old, eleven. You know, it, he, it kicks in a little earlier, but it's not as detailed. No, as yeah, the detail. I don't have but, details, but I, I have I have visual memories like that. I think I can yeah. I can imagine like I, I I can remember being in certain places probably because I've I've you know reimagined it over and over again it's probably so far remembered what you remember, reality yeah. and i'm 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 creating a new memory in my mind but i do remember like sitting in certain places of the house or sitting and like riding in a car or being in a certain place and having that like that emotional memory of it i guess so i can sort of see him especially if he had such a complicated relationship with his father i think that that would probably stick with him too you know, the, what, listening to these podcasts, it doesn't sound that complicated. It was just that his his mom and the, and his stepfather got a, he, they got a divorce when he was like ten. But mm-hmm. like, I don't. That was why that chapter was, spoke to me so much, just because it was clear like the memory stuck with him, and he remembers yeah. every detail of uh, Drinkers Hall of Fame or the other bars they were going to. Tyler, you mentioned um, the angle in the seat, and then it's gone to this question. I know Ted, you and I have had 
been around conversations about our one of the former guests uh usi professor eric braysmith when he saw this film his problem with the movie which was that there's no black people in the movie and it always struck me as whenever I first heard that, I was thrown off because one, I think Tarantino is one of a pretty damn good director when it comes to representation. He's mm-hmm. pretty good in that department. Two, I thought of that exact shot just because like he's replacing a black man with Brad Pitt. Do you guys have any thoughts on this now, especially because he did finally address it in the Joe Rogan uh, podcast, and it was oh, yeah. it was very quick too because he was just like he was talking about critiques of the movie and. He lumped it in where he said he's got some critiques about uh, Vietnam's not mentioned much in the movie, mm-hmm. which, to be fair, one of the Manson girls does mention it. Yeah. Um, and he said uh, he, got, he got the critique that there were no black people in the movie. And his, his response was, um, yeah, so Cliff and Rick didn't pass Jim Brown in the studio a lot and say hi to him. That was yeah. how he, he kind of cast it off. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that if there were going to be more black people in the movie, they'd be in service positions and that would have been its own critique. I mean, again, like he could have written those characters in, but, um, in Hollywood at this time, you mean, but he's, yeah, he's all... yeah. I mean, he could have written the actor characters in, I think maybe, but I don't know. Again, I don't know how much, how much like even social integration among like those characters there would have been really i mean i'm talking in like you know maybe at work you would have seen each other but how often would they have actually hung out together i don't know i i, I that's i i wouldn't know the historical accuracy of that like ted you have any no i mean that was my first i i did think of that a lot and i yeah. and I, tr- and I try to um because we can't how can you not think about it a lot in this day and age and uh uh it's uh and I thought, well, you know, he was he's he's trying to show that changes are happening. Like he talk, he makes a book of the reference. Uh, everybody's uh, the actors now are, long, are sons of actors, long hair hippies, mm-hmm, Michael Douglas, mm-hmm. Peter Fonda, and the whole era is changing from easy, you know, going to the easy rider from the old school stuff. So I'm thinking, well, you know, there were the riots and Malcolm X was shot and Martin Luther King, and so the, I, you would think there might have the been the TV representation of that. I, I don't know. There, yeah, there might be something happening in '69 in LA. Maybe not. Maybe it's very. You know, it's, it's it's been. You know, it's been very white for a long time. Watts is like '67, isn't it? Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if he. Uh, and I'm just thinking. You know, my I grew up in a very white, you know, uh, world in my in my in my little closed world in Evansville, Indiana. There were well, the, you guys both have. Uh, um, father figures that were african-american no yeah then my yeah my mother i had i went i had uh, uh yeah we lived with a, a african-american boyfriend and then my mom eventually married a vietnam vet who was african-american and that was it was to say the relationship was problematic is to say yes it okay was. but uh yeah i don't know it's it's um but i still think it the film works uh with without addressing that uh you know uh I don't know. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think I, I take it from, I take it, I mean, I think the the biggest glaring omission in which it would have been more contextualized would be within the Manson world, because that was so much of his, for, for whatever you would call it, I mean, that was, he truly was... Modus operandi. An extremely racist person who was trying to start a race war. Yeah. Um, or had aspirations to. Um, and so that was sort of absent. But also like the 
that Charles Manson of it all was also kind of absent from it. I mean, he shows up and like you see the Manson family, but you don't really understand why it's not really about them or what they're trying to do. You know, it's funny because I, we watched this with my mom. My mom came to visit and we took her to see it at the Arclight. And she uh, grew up watching Bonanza and Westerns and all this stuff. So she was like, and I was sort of worried because she's not a, queer, a Tarantino fan for the violence. But she was just like, I loved it. I didn't go to the bathroom once. I sat through the whole thing. It was amazing. She's seen it multiple times since. At Christmas, we watched it with my brother and his wife who are... 32 they had no idea what was happening because huh. they just don't know anything about that time they don't really know much about the manson family so they were just sort of like what was that i guess that was good but like is that what happened with the manson family we're like oh no 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 this is that was historical visionism but like they also had no clue about hollywood at the time so like <laughs> so I, th I think that there is like there is a a weird um there is a barrier of entry, I think, that you have to have like some knowledge of this world to really understand the nuance of the story itself. I mean, I think that you can enjoy the film for what it is, but I think that what we're talking about is, I think we're talking about this stuff because we all have a knowledge of it and like an mm. interest and obsession with it. And I think that I, I'm very curious to see how this movie ages, really. Yeah, that's a good because point. Because I don't know if it is going to be as, as re received as well for that reason, because I think it, it's going to be harder for people to get into it. I've had a little problem in my head just because rewatching the movie over and over, like it started to represent my historical idea of 69 too much where it's <laughs> like, um, and in my head, I'm like, you know, there's, they filmed films in 1969. Like, yeah. like I will, uh, a few months ago, I rewatched model shop and I was like, why am I like salivating over once upon a time in Hollywood for this regard when you could see right. LA in 1969, um, I was going to say, Tyler, I did show my uh, dad and stepmom this film, who were both, would have been 18 at this time. Mm -hmm. My dad wasn't into it, but he did kind of casually say, had some good music. Um, yeah. <laughs> my stepmom was really into it. She was over this week and saw the book on my coffee table and was just like, can I borrow that book? Oh, uh, I got a question. What you, what, uh, I was curious, what do you think about it? He kind of uh, pulled back on the... Uh... Rick Dalton stuttering in this in the book. He kind of modified that somewhat. That seems, seems like, like it disappeared. Yeah, there's a little bit. Uh, a little bit where they actually referred to, like. It's in the in the dressing room. It? It, yeah. It's, yeah. Whenever he's getting yeah. his, his look on, and he was just like, they were like, is this going to continue? So I thought that was I thought that was curious how he, he there is some slight. It's not. I mean, it's not like you could take the book of the movie and, and throw it and mesh it all together in one big piece. You, oh. you can't do that. With I, that. I mean, the distinct thing about the book that really blew my mind was um, the ending of the movie is different from the ending of the book. And mm -hmm. I reread, there were two passages I reread before going into this and uh, my, or two of my favorite passages, including the very last chapter, the very last scene, just because supposedly what had happened was that was a filmed scene that they cut because it felt like it was into the second act or, or, and it was just felt too much like an ending, but it also felt like the thematic bow on there. But reading that ending, it's 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 just equally as touching. And mm -hmm. um, well, it is interesting how how absent Sharon Tate is from the book. Um, 
And, you know, it still it, it includes her, but she doesn't. And the mansions yeah. at the end, like it's where are they going towards at the end? I think I, you know, what was really interesting, my read of the the ending of the film is sort of bittersweet because, right, you know, at the end, he Sharon Tate isn't murdered, which is wonderful. And like that is what I think that like what is so touching about the film, too, is when you see Sharon Tate watching herself on film and being like just so enamored with just like this excitement of seeing her and like getting the laughs and all that stuff. It's so sweet. And, and knowing that she what she did worked. Yeah. And then, you know, having that over the the murder of her overhanging all of that as being so tragic. And and it is it is extremely tragic. It still is tragic. Um, and is is much more brutal than what happened to the fictionalized murderers in the film. Like, you know, you can't really claim that the film was overly violent when they perpetrated something much worse right. in real life. But I think that what was interesting about the film's ending to me is that my the it's sort of is like okay well if this how does reality deviate in this world like is sharon tate ever going to be famous in this mm. version that he created there, there's no ex- exploration about what happens with sharon tate she was really she was she became famous because she was murdered i mean all of her movies were re-released because of the murder and it, it sort of touched upon when she goes to see valley of the dolls and kate berlant doesn't recognize her the the box office girl and uh and i th- i think about that a lot is that this movie sort of shows this sort of bittersweet idea of what Sharon's life could be where maybe Rick Dalton succeeds and for Rick Dalton to succeed that also means that Sharon Tate doesn't but she also gets to live I don't know um and that's and so I I had a really different reaction to the book in that way is that the book didn't really give me that final feeling um about being kind of just happy that like she gets to live her life in this imagined way and still gets to have her child. And maybe Roman Polanski doesn't do what Roman Polanski does. And you know, (sighs) how that sort of thing. And like this idea that he's changing history for good, not just because it's fun in a revenge tale kind of way, the rest of the, the way that rest of his revenge films have been. Um, That's true. Like you, you really don't, there's certain comes a certain point where you're not a hundred percent sure with the ending relegated to the way it, it was, why the Mansons or family is even really in the book to a certain extent. Right. Besides the yeah. fact that it's representation representative of the movie. I was going to um, say with the ending, when we're reading it, what made sense a lot about it was, so supposedly the original, what was shot in the movie was a, like the whole, almost all the Lancer pilot was shot or the mm-hmm. majority of the Lancer pilot was shot and was going to be integrated into the movie. And I think the way it ended the moot book ended was probably similar to the way where you find out the end of the Lancer pilot through actors reading lines to each other. Like mm-hmm. that's how the scene plays. And that seems like a very neat way of bringing two storylines together and, and appreciation of Hollywood. Like, but you, I think I really see your point, Tyler. I see your point. On the yeah. Film. I think I think that the the criticism that I read of the film that I think could be I think you could make a valid point for it is that he's you know it's a love letter to this era in Hollywood and it's a love letter to and I think that the criticism was oh well he's really you know kind of glamorizing an era that was still pretty misogynist and racist and 
you know, and I don't think that that's what he's doing. I don't think that he, I think at the end of the day, he was saving Sharon Tate. And that's what right. the point of the revisionism was. It was giving her more, more life than what I think that we've allowed her to have as the infamous murder victim. Who, right. Where she's labeled as, who that, was in a couple, identity. a couple movies. I mean, like Valley of the Dolls was not received well for many years after her death. It was still seen as this trashy movie. And I mean, it is, but it's also a beautiful movie and it's a really well-made movie as silly as it is. Did you see the, um, uh, I want to say at the end of 2019, Greta Gerwig gave Tarantino this award. Yes. It might've been, do you remember yeah. her speech from it? Yeah. Really... I think of that, that speech all the time. And I think that her speech is 100%. Do you remember like the quote? He... It was something along the lines of, he shows the world of uh, uh, cinema is a world that we want to live in. And it's a world where it's like, uh, um, if something with Hitler like uh, loses World War II and uh, Sharon Tate lives, yeah, is that I the mean, quote? I think that he shows bad people, but he also shows, you know, people triumphing over evil, like the worst evils. I think, um, which is why I relate to him. I relate him to David Lynch in the same way. I think David Lynch is just fascinated with the presence of evil in the world and what you. And how it can manipulate someone, how someone can allow themselves to give themselves over to it and and live their lives that way. And from the advantage of a surrealist Montana native. Yeah, I mean there's much there's much bigger things about that. But I think at the end of the day, I don't know. And maybe that's because I interviewed Kyle McLaughlin and that's his take on it too, as someone who's Mm, worked for so long. But like he's always, you know, he's looking at the evil that lives all around us. And he's showing it in such an extremely insane way, in a kind of metaphysical way, um, but it still exists. And I think that, you know, I think this, especially the way that he depicts women in his films, they're victims just like they're victims in real life. And they're, they're bad women and they're bad men, but they're also good women and they're good men and they're complicated people too. I do um, think a lot of uh, the, you know, one of Tarantino's heroes he keeps re- re- revering is De Palma, Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. And Brian De Palma got a lot of the same accusations against him. And De Palma supposedly pointed out that, like, look, putting men in danger is not, putting women in danger makes you care more than when watching a movie. Mm-hmm. You, you seem to be more, imbe- more audience members seem to be invested when a woman's in danger than when a man's in danger right. in the ways cinema danger. Um, one real quick question I want to put to you both on the mo- uh, about the ending that um, differences between the book and the movie. And this is an interpretation I had of the movie that I have never heard anyone else say, but it was like from my first viewing immediately the, the, when the credits rolled, this is exactly what I thought was that when Rick goes up to the Polanski residence, knowing where Jack Nicholson's career was at this time and where, mm. you know, Jack Nicholson, when he was in, the Corman movies was not the best actor in those movies. In my head, I was like, holy shit, Rick's going to be in Chinatown. That's an interesting take on that. No one else I've ever heard anyone have this. So you don't have to be charitable to me about it. If, you, if you're like, no, <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's, a, I mean, I think that there is certainly, I mean, there, I feel like physically there are a lot of similarities between. Okay. Leo thank and, you. Thank you. Tyler. Nicholson. I would argue that if Sharon Tate lives, maybe Chinatown doesn't get made. Yeah. And that's the, a much more that makes more, way more sense and once yeah. he made once he made easy rider that was it that was that was his trajectory into stardom superstardom well but i mean also just it doesn't have to be specifically chinatown but it's also like uh, the 
it took, I didn't find out for weeks till after the movie that they used the FBI episode that Burt Reynolds was in. Mm-hmm. So why doesn't Cliff have Burt Reynolds' career at that in the seventies? Is that uh, possible? Well, Burt, uh, he, he if Polanski he, makes a perfect movie with Cliff, does Cliff have a, a career in the seventies? Because this is all being said with like. No, suppo- I think if if Rick was in the right film with the right director. Yes, he would have. A, he would have become a major star, okay. and, I, and and, I, and that's one thing. I, that's kind of ties into what I wanted to point out. Is I want to read this quote I wrote. He goes, uh, five years of a sit. Oh God! Ten I... years of treading water, and now a race to the bottom." And I think that's another huge uh, uh, mission statement for Quentin. Right, is a, a spotlight on all these actors. That they're good. They're oh, they all have right. their qualities. They all could have been, but uh, but you know, they, and they make a joke about how the hell did Clint Eastwood make it? You know, I mean, and they all rush over. They, there's not there's a ton, there's a huge rush. Burt Reynolds goes over and does a Kabuchi film. Mm. Now have a Joe, yeah. uh, and uh, and but he also goes back and does TV series. He's still doing Dan August and a later series. I mean, Burt it, it took a while for Burt to kick in. Oh. Um, I mean, actually, some say that it was a cosmopolitan. That. fold out and his Carson appearances that were that really made him a star more so than his movie and TV stuff. That makes sense. Um, and, and, and then all and Deliverance was a major, you know. And to be fair, all this, all these questions I have, I like, I think it's just like the fairy tale storybook title and the way the music ends that I thought this, but Tarantino, for someone that like wants you to think about these characters after the credits roll, like He's written a book called The Films of Rick Dalton that supposedly, if his cinema book does well, is going to be published. So, mm. and in these podcasts, he's given a lot of details. Like, um, um, uh, Cliff writes a revenge movie for uh, Rick to do in the early 80s. That's a canon style one that, like, makes uh, uh, Rick rich throughout the 80s. And then he retires in 1988. And then he moves to Hawaii. And Quentin Tarantino, with a real person, or the the fictional Quentin Tarantino, meets him at a film festival. Like, these characters live on. Yeah. I forget who... I was hearing this quote the other day where uh, Dustin Hoffman... I forget who it was. It wasn't... It was someone he started out with early who did a bunch of theater before he made. It might have been. It wasn't like it wasn't like Robert Forrester, but it was something like that. Where Robert Forrester had uh, a um, medium cool, but anyway, his point was that like Dustin Hoffman was asking if he could be doing this again, and he was he said that. Well, I kind of admired him just because of the chops he got, but more than anything, him staying in regional theater and consistently working, he got better authors. Okay. Actually, I think Tarantino told that story in one of these mm. myriad broadcasts. Like you mentioned, Carson, he treats the fascinating thing I find about this like tour. Whenever he has to release something, is like he clearly treats it like he's going on Carson. Like oh he, yeah, on long form too. Yeah, I, I just love. I mean, I, I I'm very excited for more of this. Honestly, I, I like if there comes if there's more of it, I won't be upset. Like I just love this world that he's this alternate world that he's also inserting himself in. I just think is really. One of the supposed things that is next is, do you guys know it's the second to last chapter where there's a mention of, um, he, uh, he meets with his agent or the, the foreign agent Marvin Schwarz that Pacino Mm. played. And he's going to have, um, a meeting with Sergio Kabuki, uh, Kabuki at a, um, his favorite 
was a Japanese restaurant in LA or well, supposedly yeah. in a play version of this that Tarantino's already written, the entire second act is uh, the dinner of uh, Rick and Sergio Carbucci in Italy at their favorite Japanese restaurant. So, you know, he, he's, he described um, like, you know, he always talked about like these different alternates of the Kill Bill world he could have done and like the anime he wanted to do that like he got bored of after a certain point. Mm-hmm. Just He's like, he did too much. And... This is the one where it seems like he's followed through with it. He's like built out this world and he still has a little more. Yeah, maybe this is his like his Linklater approach. It's just going to be his before his before trilogy. <laughs> Once upon <laughs> every, a time in Hollywood, every, every years, we, yeah, nine yeah. years. Yeah. Wow. That would. I heard somebody was reading it at the book and they had IMBD next to him every time they, you know, there was a reference or something and they were constantly going. <laughs> I wanted to end on. Um, Based on this idea that, like, spoilers are a little liberal, I'm not telling you what this passage is from, but the where this from, um, or what happens around this passage, but I thought this was one of the most touching parts. Um, and I'll abbreviate part of it, but one of the characters talks about um, how grateful they were to work in Hollywood, and they talk about all the wonderful actors he's worked with through the years, all the different actresses he got to kiss, all the affairs he had, all the interesting people he got to work with, all the places he got to visit, all the fun stories he got to live, all the times he saw his name and picture in the papers and magazine, all the nice hotel rooms, all the fuss people made over him, all the fan mail he never read, all the times driving through Hollywood as a citizen in good standing. I just thought... Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I think that what this film does, it shows that, or and the book does too, um, it shows that this is work, but there's also a lot of like, there's joy to be had around it. And I think that he's really celebrating just the excitement. This the start, like the stardom of it. Cause I think that that's what gets everyone in, you know, interested in movies and Hollywood in the first place. And then, you know, those of us who somehow, you know, are some tangentially related to it with our work, it becomes less fun you know, the day to day. And it's sometimes we need a reminder that at the end of the day, that this is like really exciting stuff. And like, right. we get to do, we get to work on things that are like entertaining people and ourselves. So I love yeah. that. <laughs> I, the, uh, the, the thing I've been thinking about since this movie came out is um, it wasn't something Tarantino wrote, but something else someone wrote about him. It's uh, I think I've mentioned to you, Ted, the, uh, the, film crit hulk he write he used to he writes it off on the internet he wrote an essay a few years ago from a quote supposedly of uh, that he met tarantino watch they finished watching a bad movie outside a theater in boston and um tarantino told him never hate a movie and it always struck me that this type of movie especially a movie that's a like metafiction about tarantino's love of movies that seems to be the guiding ethos behind it never hate a movie and just in touching so yeah um tyler and ted thank you both for being on the podcast that's entertaining thank you thanks tyler yeah.